Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Smell of your old cigarette has stayed on my coat And even though I find it kind of gross It somehow comforts me This week the Bookshelf Cinema is screening The Imitation Game, Wild Tales, Boy Choir, Miss Julie, and more. This Friday, April 3rd, Elisa LeBlanc and Ginger St. James play a show at the bar at 10pm. And on Sunday, April 19th at Harcourt United Church, Michael Harris reads from Party of One, a book about Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper and this country's radical makeover. The bookshelf is an independently owned culture hub located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph. For more information about their hours, listings, blogs, and accessibility, please visit bookshelf.ca. Creative Control with Vish Khanna. On this episode, Rob Lind of the Sonics. The Sonics, the actual Sonics. Last put out an album almost 50 years ago. 50 years ago. They have a new album out. It's called This Is The Sonics. This is a band that uh, a lot of people credit with starting punk rock, with starting garage rock. They didn't know they were doing anything like that. They were just a band from Tacoma making music. Loud, hard-charging music that influenced... A million bands And and Rob's on the show Rob's a founding member of the band This is the Sonics is out As you're hearing this Which is great And they're touring And they're back They're they're pioneers They're like They didn't even know it They didn't even know what they were doing But they changed music And one of them's on the show Robland And I we had a fascinating conversation About the Sonics and music But also He was a pilot And the day we had this conversation Was the day of this terrible tragedy uh, where this guy flew a plane into the French Alps. Uh, It's been making all the news. It's very sad and very scary. And so I wanted to ask him about flying. So a good chunk of the top half of this conversation is just me talking to a, a, a former, a retired but experienced pilot about what the hell is happening with all these planes. Because I can't go a week without hearing about a weird plane thing. So, we talk about planes and we talk about the Sonics. Somehow it segues fine. And you'll hear brand new music by the Sonics. This is an interesting episode. Listen, myself, Rob Lind of the Sonics.
It's that time of year again. Kazoo Fest is back from April 8th to the 12th with bands like Deerhoof, Absolutely Free, No Joy, Phaedra, Scott Merritt, Motem, Homeshake, Lido Pimienta, Blimp Rock, Fetnat, Alana Gurr, Tyson and the Trepids, Fist City, Squeezy C, Black Spirituals, Tyvek, Her Harbor, and more than 25 other musical performances. Also featuring visual art installations, dance and multimedia performances, the print expo, and ending with a pancake breakfast. Kazoo Fest is presented by Wellington Brewery, The Cornerstone, Bookshelf, Mike Von Den at Home Group Realty, and CFRU. For accessibility information and further venue details, please visit the website at www.kazookazoo.ca. This episode is brought to you by Pizza Trocadero, the finest pizzeria in all of Guelph, Ontario. They've got delicious gourmet pizzas or choose from an array of fresh ingredients and make whatever you like. Calzones, wings, panzerotti, salads, breadsticks, garlic bread. Pizza Trocadero has it all. You can find them at 7 Municipal Street in Guelph or visit them online at trocaderoguelph.ca. That's T-R-O-K-A-D-E-R-O-G-U-E-L-P-H dot C-A. Call them at 519-829-2444 for pickup or delivery. That's Pizza Trocadero, a place of the good trade. Regarded saxophone player currently based in the state of North Carolina. In the 1960s, Lind co-founded the Tacoma, Washington-based band The Sonics, and rock and roll was never the same again. Their first two albums, 1965's Here Are the Sonics and 1967's Boom, are considered classics that represent the birth of what we now call garage rock. While other groups of the time might have let a few grains of grit infiltrate their pop songs, the Sonics infused originals and covers with a particular kind of menace and charge that anticipated punk, metal, and any other kind of music with danger in it. Fifty years since their first album, the Sonics are back with a fiery new record called This Is The Sonics, which is out now via their own Revox Records, and they'll be touring the U.S. in April and May with a Toronto stop at Lee's Palace on April 26th. Here now to talk about the Sonics and possibly more is founding member Rob Linda. Hello, Rob. How are you? Hi, I'm fine. It's great to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. Now, where in the world are you right now, Rob? Right now, I'm uh, in the living room of my home in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's a wonderful town in some ways, isn't it? Do you like Charlotte? It, it is in many ways. I came here 25 years ago uh, as a result of uh, a job, and I haven't left. Nice. Yeah, my, my, I have some relatives down in that area, and I always... I find that the air is sweet in North Carolina. I can't say that that's true of every place, but I've been in North Carolina and the air just feels nice. Does that resonate with you? <laughs> well, with the exception of in August, and in August the air 
changes from being sweet and nice to warm and thick and sticky. It, it gets pretty humid here in the summertime, late summer. Oh, okay, and my my recollection are like it's like the fall, maybe October. There's something nice about the air in October. Yeah, it's beautiful here in the fall yeah. and the spring too. We're just getting into that now. Now, what brought you to? You say you had a job. What was your job? Um, I was an airline pilot. I took a job with an airline uh, that was based here, and I moved from Los Angeles, California, to uh, Charlotte so that I didn't have to commute all the way across the country. Oh, I see. Okay. And this, you, you know, is it true that you were a, a fighter pilot in Vietnam? Uh, yeah, that is, that's true. Um, specifically, I was a Navy attack pilot, but uh, I was flying... Uh, um, attack jets off an aircraft carrier. Wow, that's that's uh, well, that's on some level that's not good, but at the same time that's <laughs> <laughs> that's impressive. That and then you parlayed that into flying what commercial airliners? Yeah, I uh, I had a uh, career as a commercial airline pilot, and then after that, I flew business jets for a few years. Oh, nice. So you, um, you like before I fully got away from flying. But do you miss flying? I do. I miss it every day. But my wife is an airline captain herself, so I live vicariously through her. <laughs> through her. That's that's nice. I mean, do you ever have the ability or urge to go up in a small plane yourself? You know, or teach flying or something like that? Um, I did teach in the. I did teach in a flight simulator for a while. I've been doing that just up until recently, when the Sonics got so busy, I had to drop out of that. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, I really do. Uh, it's something that I've done since I was 17. I've just about have always been a pilot. And so I, I do miss it. It's something that I spent most of my life doing and and uh, retired from it as a result of reaching mandatory retirement age. Oh, I see. And, right, uh, right. Now, but like I say, I still, uh, I still um, listen with, with uh, <laughs> great interest to my wife, Suzanne, when she comes home from her flying trips, because I think I'm kind of jealous of her. What do you, we, we have seen as a people, n- numerous strange and mysterious plane disappearances and, and accidents of late. The last couple of years in particular, like planes have just vanished. Uh, some have been found, but there seem to be a lot of strange flight things happening. What do you, what do you ascribe that to? Can you ascribe anything to that? Well, I can't because there isn't any um, there isn't any thread between all of them. I, I'm frequently asked, as are most professional pilots, what happened to um, the the triple uh, seven that disappeared in the South Ocean, mm-hmm. and no one knows. Uh, no one has any idea what happened there. Um, the uh, Airbus that crashed about a month ago, uh, they pretty much decided that that uh, as a result of bad weather, they stalled it. And the uh, Airbus that was just lost in the Alps this morning, they just now have picked up the cockpit voice reporter. Uh, so right now, nobody knows what happened or why that happened that'll be coming out in the next six months or so. Yeah, I mean, these are all clearly case-by-case situations, but it does seem to be an an alarming pattern or trend, or maybe this happens more than we pick up on. 
No, I don't think so. I think you're right. I think here in the last 18 months anyway, um, there has been several, an, an airline crash, an airliner going down is an extremely rare yeah. situation. And just the fact that there's been two of them in the last, I guess, two or three months, that's a pretty unusual happenstance. Yeah. It's flying in an airliner is so much safer than driving down your car down the freeway, statistically. Yeah, that's what we've heard. But lately, uh, did you see the clip of the plane crashing into or clipping a freeway recently? No, I haven't seen that. Oh, man. I put it on my Facebook wall because I, well, it was morbid on, on my part, I guess. But it was weird. It was just like cars, someone had a dash cam and then this plane just like comes out of, you know, the right perspective there and just clips the bridge with its wing and hits a car. It actually tags a car with its wing and then just, I think it crashed. It just it went down. And anyway. Well, from the air, from the air, things like freeways and golf courses are highly attractive if you lose the engine on your airplane. If you're small, flying a small plane or um, oh, right. and it quits, um, looking down and seeing a big, wide freeway is really, really attractive. <laughs> Fortunately, I've never had to do that, but I but I have looked at them from time to time, thinking to myself, well, if anything happens, I'm going to land down there because it's two miles long and straight. Right. But yeah, yeah w- when your choice is crash into the pine trees or land on the freeway and try to miss cars, the freeway wins every time. Right. Yeah, no, I, I hear you there. Now, the... Uh... I, I don't know if this is out of left field, but these planes coming, like, there's no way like climate change or something might have anything to do with this. I mean, these planes are in the air. There's, there's all sorts of weird things. There's something going on with the barometric pressure. I don't know anything about planes, so forgive me if I'm just using a bunch of big <laughs> words to sound smart. But is there something going on with the air pressure or, or some kind of shift and something going on up there that could be uh, you know connected to this? No, I don't think so. I, I, I strongly doubt that. Hmm. Um the uh, the triple seven that uh, was lost down in the South Ocean that they're still looking for general consensus among most pilots that I'm around is that it uh, was on a southerly heading for some reason and just ran out of gas. The uh, okay. flight crew was incapacitated, and he's uh, nobody knows what happened today. It was sudden. They were at thirty eight thousand feet, and all of a sudden they came down in the Alps. One quick radio call, and it looks like they. Uh, it looks like it. Uh, what they're saying is there's not much left of the airplane, just little pieces, which tells the investigators that it probably came came down pretty straight. Mm. Oh, man, it's very disturbing. But I... again, yeah, that'll be coming out in the news. You can expect you can expect to be hearing nothing but that here for the next couple of days. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know how to segue out of this into talking about your amazing band, but we'll figure it out. Let's figure it out right now. I don't know if there's All any. Right. <laughs> I don't know if there's any connection between playing the saxophone and piloting a plane. Maybe you'd have insight on that. <laughs> well, both uh, both things require a little bit of creativity. <laughs> I, Let me I, put it that way. That's a stretch. I know, but. <laughs> I was trying to map out the Sonics trajectory. When when did the Sonics first break up? I, I find this a little confusing. Um, we initially broke up 
late 1967. And I get this question occasionally. Um, the, the term breakup is kind of a misnomer. You know, rock and roll bands, any kind of bands, actually, uh, when you say the band broke up, well, there's always rancor and mm-hmm. you know obscene gestures, and I'll never talk to you again. It wasn't that way with us. Life kind of <laughs> descended on us. We just um, the Vietnam War was going on, and there was a draft going on here in the United States, and and uh, I was a senior in college and and got drafted. And uh, in order to uh, avoid the draft and finish college, I got accepted into Navy Officer Candidate School, who who allowed me graciously to finish college. And then I went to Officer Candidate School and went on in my military flying career. Uh, Jerry le- Jerry actually left first, and uh, he started a little asphalt paving company doing parking lots and things like that. Mm-hmm. Larry uh, graduated from school and uh, got into the insurance business, the corporate insurance business, and and worked for, oh, 20 or 25 years in uh, loss prevention and and things like that. Bobby, our drummer, Bob Bennett, um, ultimately moved to Honolulu, Hawaii, and got into, he became the sales manager uh, for a new car dealership and Larry's brother, Andy, the remaining member of the bass player became a high school teacher, but, uh, there was no, we weren't throwing, we (laughs) weren't throwing rotten fruit at each other or anything like that. We just, like I say, life kind of descended on us and we went in different directions for a a while. Right. Adulthood, adulthood dawned. And you, yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, the band was, the band is now revered, but, uh, the band at the time, I mean, how successful was being in the Sonics at that time? Well, it was regionally successful. And in, in those days, um, there were a lot of bands in the Pacific Northwest. It was a hotbed for bands. Having said that, though, um, nobody got out of the Pacific Northwest. It was like we were all trapped up there. Hmm. A couple of bands did. Jimi Hendrix did. He got out of there. And so did the band, uh, the Tacoma band, I, I'm proudly state, the Ventures. Right. Uh, they, they had Walk, Don't Run and Tell Star and, and a number of uh, hit songs. And they became uh, world famous and still are today. But there were some good bands there and, and nobody got out and that included us. So we all pretty much played in a four state area and British Columbia, we'd get up to uh, Victoria and Vancouver and Nanaimo places like that, but primarily Washington, Oregon, Idaho, uh, Northern California. And that's pretty much where we were um, at the time. We were regionally pretty popular. We, we started out playing high school hops and things like that. And, and as we got more accomplished and played more, which is normally what happens, the more you play, the better you get. Yeah. Um, we started playing teenage nightclubs. A place called the Red Carpet um, was kind of our hangout. We had to audition to play there. It was a real popular place to play. And uh, we passed the audition and came in and played. And over a period of months, 
um, we got real popular there and we'd show up behind the building to unload and there'd already be a line going around the block. So our, our, uh, reputation started to go up and mm -hmm. then we did the record, the witch, and we followed that up and did the, the, the record psycho. And from that point on, um, we were playing in, for us at the time, big venues, uh, roller rinks with, you know, two, 3000 people in them and armory auditoriums, things like that. We, we kind of got off the teenage nightclub circuit. And we also, um, the big rock jock station there in Seattle, KJR used to bring the big acts to town. And, uh, in those days, the big acts were the Beach Boys and Jan and Dean and uh, Love and Spoonful, the Mamas and the Papas. And uh, they would bring them for these big shows at the Coliseum. And uh, so we got to open a lot of those shows. We were the we used to laugh. You know, it was send out the clowns to check out the sound. <laughs> basically, <laughs> basically what it was. But we but, you know, here we were 18 years old playing in front of 25,000 people. So that was kind of that was kind of heady stuff for a, a bunch of teenage rock and rollers. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, these days, uh, artists, the whole music industry laments about low album sales and and how uh, the live show is what uh, sustains a certain artists. You guys, you you mentioned that you guys were were quite popular regionally. Did that translate into uh, decent record sales for your uh, your albums? Well, there's a funny story about the witch actually in those days when you do it the reason that you would do a record in the northwest there was so that you could raise your asking price hmm. raise your performance fee a little bit so it wasn't so much sales but there's an interesting story um involving the first song we did the witch yeah um we record went in the studio to record that Jerry wrote it and he wrote it to be a ponderous kind of a blues song. Everybody knows the witch. I mean, the riff to the witch, mm -hmm. oh, G G sharp G da, 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 da. Well, we went in the studio with the idea of recording it much more heavy, more like, we're going to do do it that way. That's the way we, you know, we thought, oh, yeah, cool. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> well, we'd never been in a studio before, you know. We were a bunch of teenage boys, and we got in the studio, and, oh, God, we're in a recording studio. We had to take an elevator up to the fourth floor or something, commercial recorders in downtown Seattle. And, yeah. and uh, so we were all nervous. We were just nervous as you could be. And so we did The Witch, and it came out two or three times faster than what we, we were just rushing it because we were so hyper. And, uh, when we were through with the session, we went over to, uh, Larry's mom and dad's house and, and laid on the floor. We had a studio master and we, we played it over and over and we were just heartbroken. We thought, Oh, listen to that piece of, you know, we just blew it. Oh God, we screwed it up. We blew it so bad. We blew it. We had to take our money to, to record it. We had, we had to play for free one night and we, we, we took the 500 bucks and went to the studio. What, and uh, yeah, no, I, I, I well, what, what exactly were your problems with the record? Well, 
at the time we thought it was supposed to be a heavy blues song, and all of a sudden here's this da 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 do do ba ba you know, fast four four. And so we thought we we thought we screwed it up, but we went ahead and put the record out. We decided you know not to do it again. And what happened was the local rock stations used to do teen hops at the high schools and the, and the disc jockeys that were real popular with the kids would show up with a bunch of records and, you know, a turntable and some big speakers. And then they'd play songs at the, after the basketball game, you know, in the gymnasium or something. And uh, the kids started asking them um, if they had the witch by the Sonics and they never did, of course. But they went back to the radio station and and started telling the program director, "Hey, we're up. we're getting a lot of requests by this uh, for this song by this local group." And so they started doing that, and then the kids started calling the radio station saying, "Play the witch, play the witch." <laughs> <laughs> so they started playing it, um, and it got up to number two in the top fifty. Wow. In, in the area there. Number two. Number one was Petula Clark's Downtown. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and we never we never were able to bump Petula, but we thought, you know, we were young guys. We thought, well, yes, yeah, she's from London and a big recording star, and she hangs out with the Beatles and Mick Jagger, you know. Yeah, she should probably be number one. Well, 35 years later, when we were all grown up, we had the opportunity to... Uh, talked to the program director, a fellow named Pat O'Day. And Pat told us, oh, no, you guys were number one by a long way. We just couldn't put you number one because you're singing songs about devils and witches and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, you were censored. Wow. Yeah, we we were. We actually were. And then Pat told us, we only, uh, he said, when I first heard The Witch, boy, I really didn't hear it. I really didn't like it. Uh-huh. And we started playing it, and it sold 20,000 copies in the first two weeks in the Pacific Northwest. Wow. said, holy cow, we got something here. Yeah, yeah. But uh, they would only play it from 3 o'clock on. So we only play it when the kids were getting out of high school. We wouldn't play it during the daytime because we were afraid it would scare the housewives. And, and you know, we were offended because if you listen to it, if you know the song, it's not about devils and witches. Jerry's as Jerry used to do quite frequently, was writing a song about some evil woman that was mean to her guy. Right. And, uh, but that was the story of the witch. That's how, uh, we, we found out 35 years later that we really were number one. And, and Mr. O'Day, Pat said, Oh yeah, you guys were number one by a long way, but we couldn't, we couldn't do that because you guys were, we were afraid you were singing devil music. (laughs) That's obviously it's ridiculous in retrospect, but uh, you it know, is. I you I so much has been made about the sound of the Sonics, and I wanted to ask you about what inspired it initially. And it sounds to me, based on what you're describing in terms of how the Witch was recorded, that it might have been nerves that really inspired the sound. Is that no? I'll tell you what the I'll tell you what the story is there. Um, we do interviews in in europe quite frequently and and when we get to the subject we always make the distinction that there's two main cities there tacoma and seattle right it's similar to liverpool and london seattle is a big metropolitan city 
Tacoma, where we were all from, was a blue-collar port city. Our dads were all blue-collar workers and worked in mills and on the waterfront and things like that. We grew up that way. Well, the music is a direct reflection of those two cities. The Seattle bands, um, and there were a number of very, very good ones, were more musically inclined. They were jazzier, swingier, mm-hmm. more pop-sounding. Um, we hated pop. We wanted to. We wanted to rock and roll. We were into Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis and and uh, anybody that rocked hard straight ahead. And that's what we wanted to do. Um, we've been asked, well, how did you guys decide to invent garage rock? <laughs> well, that's just the way we played. That's what we wanted to do. And the other thing was, in those days, we were playing three sets. And uh, a lot of times in the summer, we'd play out at these lake pavilions and places. And we'd start our first set. It, it'd be broad daylight. And, and there'd be 20 people in there in the, in the place with their arms folded, staring at us. We hated that. Jerry particularly hated people standing there with their arms folded, staring at him. So we got into the habit of coming out on wherever we were going to play for that first set and getting right after it. Start blasting as soon as we hit the stage. Right. And, and and that's always the way it's been, and that's the way it is now. We start our sets now with Cinderella. We start as hard as we can. Hmm. But that's what it was. It wasn't anything we were trying to do to create a sound. In those days, there was no such thing as garage or punk. It was just Sonics music. That's the way we were playing at the time. We were playing as hard and as rocking as we could. And we liked stuff like that. When somebody would come out like, you know, the... The Beatles were very melodic, and we were very impressed by them and thought they were really cool. But we would do Drive My Car or Dizzy Miss Lizzie, Twist and Shout. We used to do Twist and Shout at, at those big stadium shows. Yeah. That's what we liked. When people were rocking, that's what we got all over. And so when the Kinks came out with You Really Got Me, we almost drove our car off the freeway. We loved them and still do today. <laughs> We thought, I don't know who those guys are, but they're sure playing the right way. So, they, was, But it wasn't the kinks that inspired you guys necessarily, was it? No. Oh, no. We were, we'd were we been playing for a couple of years before the kinks came out. That's right. Yeah, that's what I want to I want to clarify that. Because you, I'm still trying to get a sense of, I understand your, your motivation, but I'm just curious, sonically, was it simply like we want to take the melodicism of pop, but make it heavier? Or were there other bands in, that you were listening to that you were kind of trying to emulate in some way? Well, there was a, another band in Tacoma, uh, the Whalers, and they were a rhythm and blues band, but they were very good. And, and when they played rock songs, when they played Little Richard, which they could certainly do, um, they were really good at it. And uh, we were we used to go watch them. They were a couple of years older than us, and so we used to go. Jerry and I used to go stand in front of them every night that we had a chance to watch them play. Yeah, and and get back and think, boy, you know when they when they do Bamalama Bamaloo, that's what we got to do. We so we wanted to do those kinds of songs that they were doing, but we wanted to do them all the time, and that's kind of where we went. Yeah. Now 
when the, you talked a little bit about how the early, at least how the witch was received, and we've kind of covered a little bit about how the first couple of Sonic records were uh, embraced uh, in in the region and, and whatnot. Um, when did you realize that those first couple of albums were resonating people beyond their specific time and place? Like at some point, you know, years go by, people start talking about the Sonics more reverently, right? Well, you know, I think in most of our cases, I certainly speak for myself, I don't think I was aware that those albums were beginning to be important until about 2005, something like that, Hmm. when uh, we started being approached to uh, go back on the stage again. But Um, up until then, I mean, in the 90s, certainly key figures. I mean, you've had some fairly uh, influential musicians, Bruce Springsteen, Kurt Cobain, uh, Mark Arm, <laughs> like people like Mudhoney. Like there's just like a bunch of people have cited the Sonics as a key influence. Um, I think Jack- Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Jack White probably as well. Uh, so that stuff started to come out over the last 20, 25 years. But you're saying yeah, you, I, you didn't really figure I, I out. No, I didn't start becoming aware of that until into the 2000s. I, I, I had no idea what Bruce Springsteen's feelings were about us until I met him and he told me. I had no idea. Huh. That's interesting. And and did, and this idea, this, this whole garage rock scene, did you not see any connection between what you had done and what was going on there? Did you not know about it? I didn't know about it. Hmm. I was a working I was a working commercial airline pilot. And you, did you not keep I, did you not keep up with music at all? I did. Um I like music, but I'm very eclectic in terms of music. I've always been a rocker. I've always been a rock guy. And uh, I've seen bands from time to time, but I I like music per se. I I like all kinds of music. I like a lot of country music. I like Cajun music. Mhm. My wife's a violinist. I love listening to her play classical music. I just like all kinds of music, and I always have since I was a little kid. I guess that's why I wound up in a rock and roll band. But right. no, in answer to your question, like for instance, uh, back in the 60s, we, did, we went back east and we did a, a, a little tour back there. We wound up on a television show, 
and there was a band from the Midwest nobody had heard about, and the lead singer was a guy named Bob Seeger. And I sat and talked to Bob in this TV studio all one day because we were stuck in there. And so later when I got in the military and I was overseas, I I, I was hearing Fire Down Below and, and all of Bob's big hits. Yeah. And so I had all those because I'd met him and I liked him. And, and I still, even though I was a military officer, I, I sort of was a rock and roll military officer. I liked that kind of music. So I was listening to the Doobie Brothers and, you know, a very good friend of mine was in the group Moby Grape. And I listened to those guys. But I really didn't, in answer to your question, I didn't make any connection uh, between you know, the cramps and, and Jack White. And I didn't really start becoming aware of that until uh, 2003, 2004, right in there. Huh. That's interesting. And, and I mean, I can understand that you're, you're likely flattered by uh, the acknowledgement, but does the term oh. garage rock actually mean anything to you? No, it didn't. It, it didn't. I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> What do you and mean? we get asked that, you know, it sounds facetious, but I, we get asked that question a, a lot, um, particularly in, you know, Europe and Australia and some of the places we've been. Um, why did you guys decide? How did you guys decide to invent the garage rock? We get that question once in a while. And, and, you know, it's an honest question, but we didn't know what garage rock was. What we were doing back in the 60s was playing Sonics music. That's just the way we played. That's the way we wanted to play. We wanted to we wanted to come out and blast right in your face. So you um, don't you don't what, but you don't resent the term or being connected? No, no, no. gosh, no. Okay. No. Has it become something is it endearing among the band to be like, yeah, yeah, supposedly we're garage rock or you know, we don't talk about it much, <laughs> but you know, I guess it's honest because uh, at one point, we were uh, rehearsing in Bob Bennett's garage at his, at his mom and dad's house. So I guess legitimately, you could say we were garage rock <laughs> guys. Yeah. Were there any particular bands? I, again, I'm trying to get a. I, I, I'm I'm trying to figure out if how much uh, you paid attention to what happened uh, to the legacy of the band after it stopped really functioning. But it, has there been a particular band that you feel? best captured the vibe or as you describe it it's sonics music has anyone come close to capturing what you guys have been up to or what you guys were up to uh in their own work well personally um personally i think the hives have the guys from sweden mm -hmm. um they're good friends of ours. Uh, we met them when we did Cave Stomp. They flew to Cave Stomp to meet us and to be with us. And uh, since then, uh, we played Stockholm, and uh, three of them came on stage and did the encore with us, which was a lot of fun. And then when they played Seattle, they invited me to come down and play the encore with them, which I did. Nice. And having, you know, become friends with them, uh, their lead singer, if you're familiar with him, his name is Pele Almquist. Yes, yes. Uh, he said that uh, when they were juniors in high school in Fagersta, Sweden, he said he walked into the school cafeteria with a stack of Sonics albums and said, this is how we're going to be. Wow. And so some of their songs sound a little bit like that, like us. 
Um, they're very creative guys, and I don't mean to I don't mean to insinuate that they're they're copying us. They're they're a fantastic band, and when I was on stage with them, they have so much power that they feel like us. The floor moves under your feet just like it does on stage with with us. Yeah. So they felt very being on stage with them and playing with them. It felt just like playing with the Sonics. Hmm. Now you play saxophone. Um, uh huh. And <laughs> I'm curious what inspired you to take that up, and and also if you've contemplated its role in rock and roll. Because on some level, I don't know if you're aware of this, but in sort of softer rock music or contemporary rock music, the saxophone had a bit of a comeback in the last couple of years. But your approach to the saxophone. I'm curious about your approach to the saxophone and how you felt it fit in this rock configuration. Well, in the 60s in the Pacific Northwest, every band had a saxophone. You had to have a saxophone, Interesting. Fortunately, for, fortunately for me. Um, and, and the way that I got into playing saxophone is, is kind of an interesting story. I was a senior in high school, and... I had been playing the clarinet from the time I was a little boy. My mom got me into, she thought it was important that I have music training and rented a clarinet and, and I played in all the little middle school band and the high school band and so forth. So by the time I was a senior in high school, I was pretty accomplished clarinet player and I was in the band and the orchestra and all that. And one day after school, um, I, I lived a couple miles from school, but I had something I had to do, a meeting or something. And so I was going to walk home. I didn't take the school bus. Mm -hmm. And I went to the music room where the where the orchestra rehearses, you know, and, and I went in and there was this guy and he was playing. There was a, you know, beat up old scarred up piano there and he was playing it and he was playing rock and roll music. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. So I went down and and, and uh, said hi to him. I said, God, that's that's really cool. I like what you're doing. He said, yeah, this is rock and roll. I said, yeah, I know. This is. And so I said, well, there must be a saxophone around here someplace. And, you know, the whole back wall of the music room was nothing but music cases, trombones and trumpets. And, mm -hmm. and so I found a sax. I'd never played a sax before, never had one in my hands. And I opened this tenor sax case. And I, I put a reed and a mouthpiece together because it was just like a clarinet. It went the same way, except it was bigger. Right. And, and I went down and and I said, what's this note? And the piano player said, that's a G. I said, oh, okay, let's play in G. <laughs> so we were playing away and we were having a great time. And the band director came out and kicked us out. I still remember what he said. He said, hey, you guys, quit stepping on that cat's tail. <laughs> <laughs> and so the piano player said, God, that was really fun. Listen, I live a mile from here. I got a piano in my house. You want to go back over to my house and, and play some more? And I said, yeah, sure. And that's how I met Jerry Rosley. That's wow. the first. That's where Jerry and I first met and first played notes together. They were probably pretty horrible <laughs> at the time. But he and I have been playing together ever since. So, We're 15 years old, 16 years old. That's interesting because I think uh, in, in, I don't know, maybe I, I listen to a lot of music myself. I listen to a lot of jazz and stuff like that. And, and, and on some level, I still think saxophones and rock bands, and these days anyway, it's more of an anomaly. It is. Uh, you, you went through the big uh, 
uh, guitar band, you know, guys, you know, beautiful bands like the Eagles and, but everybody was in guitar bands. There weren't very many sax players, kind of like sax has got extinct. Yeah. So I always listened to Clarence Clemens, you know, playing with Bruce because he was, when he was here with us, he was just the best. He was just fabulous. And so I, I, I kind of, my ears are turned for sax players like, um, uh, George Thorogood has got a real good rock sax player. He's a rocker for sax players. There's in my simple mind, there's two kinds. There's the jazz guys, the blues guys, and the rock and roll guys. The rock and roll guys play with dirty tone and a a little more simplistically. And the, the jazz guys and the, and the blues players, who are fabulous, fabulous musicians and are very fluent on their instrument, but they play a, a more swingy uh, kind of thing. Um, a perfect example is that, of that is Delbert McClinton. Delbert sax player is one of the best in the world. He's just fabulous, mm-hmm. but he's more he's in the jazz blues uh, end of things. I, I couldn't touch Delbert sax player with a ten foot pole. Right. And I don't try to. I, I'm a rock and roll guy. I always have been, and and so that's what I do. You're, do you do you like Bobby Keys? Oh yeah, of course. Who doesn't? Yeah, yeah he's wonderful. All right, I just and I listen to the sa- the session players like Bobby uh, that recorded with a lot of the bands in uh, the Los Angeles area. Yeah, those guys are fabulous. Yeah, I had the good fortune of seeing Clarence Clemens play a bunch of times with the E Street Band, and. Uh, it was pretty ridiculous. It's just like a total force of nature. It's interesting to me that, well, it's not, it totally makes sense that you would point him out, but I do think that, as I say, I think it's weird to me as someone who likes punk rock that I might still have a slight block with saxophones because in some ways there are few instruments as loud and as abrasive as a saxophone. (laughs) Like on some level, they're just as mighty as a guitar. But for whatever reason, I think it has a connotation of being like maybe not part of a punk rock thing. Yeah. Well, you know, you look at the you know you look at the Clash and people like that, and, and a saxophone is is kind of uh, an anomaly in a group like that. But then you look at us, or you look at George Thorogood, and it and it it seems to fit. It seems to work. You know. Yeah, Iggy and the Stooges as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, what prompted you guys to make this new record? I I told my uh, wife today that you guys have basically made your first record since... Your first record came out 50 years ago, and this was your first record in a long time. (laughs) And she's like, what the hell? How old are these guys? She just didn't understand. So (laughs) I'm curious, what what actually prompted you to make uh, This Is The Sonics? Well, it it was a gradually dawning awareness. When we first came back in 2007 and did those shows in New York and then immediately um, we were invited to London and uh, we had a show to do in London and it sold out immediately and they had to add a second show mm-hmm. which also sold out so we started playing and we played the continent we've we've done two tours of Europe since 2008 and uh, at the time it was all new and 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 for us and we were learning how to be a touring band we'd never been that way before this is all new stuff and uh gradually we found ourselves like a lot of bands playing the same songs over and over and and we 
really had a aversion to being considered a retro band. Here they are playing the hits of the '60s. You know that. Kind yeah, of totally. Yeah. Yeah, we and we hated that idea. So gradually, we start talking. We, in order to stay relevant and not to be an oldies but goodies band or a retro band, we need to start thinking about going in the studio. Well, you know, fast forward, um, our new manager, he's been our manager now for a couple of years, but Brian Swirsky said, well, if you, if we're going in the studio, you guys got to get Jim Diamond as producer. I didn't know Jim. I hadn't heard of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so we said, well, yeah, okay, fine. We never had a producer before. Those first albums, we produced them, you know. Right. right. And uh, so we went in the studio. We worked up a list of songs of um, originals and covers that fit the that fit the description of Sonic's music, just like we used to play. And uh, submitted those to Jim, and Jim discarded the ones he didn't like, and. Uh, took the ones that he did like. Then we flew him out to Seattle the week before we were going to go in the studio and he came to our rehearsals and we played them for him and he took notes while we played them. And uh, then we went in the studio and uh, he was in charge of that. His stated objective was, he said, I want the same energy and the same fire that you guys had in those first two albums. That's what we're shooting for. Wow. So, so we didn't do a lot of tricky overdubs. We, you know, we, we recorded pretty much like we did back in the, uh, back in the sixties, we laid down the band track and then, uh, Freddie or Jerry would go in and sing. And then Larry or I would go in and play a guitar solo or sax solo, but we didn't do a lot. We didn't put five guitar tracks down or anything like that. We went in and played pretty much like we would live. And that seems to be the. People that have heard the album now, that seems to be the conclusion that it it seems to fit pretty seamlessly with those first two albums. It's pretty remarkable how seamless it fits in with those two records. I mean, obviously there's some, I mean, and you guys are probably playing better than you did when you were teenagers. Do you feel that way? Oh, I think we did. I think maturity has a lot to do with it. I think we're we're playing so much and everybody in the band is working so hard. I think the band probably now is better live than it ever has been. Now you mentioned that the band didn't break up, but it stopped because adulthood was beckoning. Is it fair to suggest that this version of the band is now in retirement? Like this is a retirement activity almost? (laughs) Yeah, I always make the joke that in order to go in the studio, we had to uh, forego bingo night at the old musician's home. <laughs> but, but, but I mean, you guys aren't working now, right? Is it is it is now the time? Maybe I'm reading too much uh, yeah, into this. Yeah, everybody, everybody, everybody is uh, the Sonics is the main thing. Well, it, the Sonics is the main thing with all five of us. The only one of us who has, at the current time, still has a legitimate place of employment is Dusty, Dusty Watson, our drummer. Mm-hmm. And he, he's a drug and alcohol counselor down in Los Angeles. Okay. But the, re- but the rest of us uh, play music. Is there anything about your 
current station stations in life that is reflected on the new record like the first song is i i don't need no doctor which is potentially again maybe i'm reading too much into it but you're probably at an age where you gotta like go to the doctor every once in a while and maybe you're getting sick of it i don't know i don't need no wheelchair <laughs> <laughs> is this is this no. a, is this a reflection of your current state of mind in some way no, not in the slightest. I don't need no doctors to cover right. that uh, we played for some time, and uh, we we kind of redid it a little bit from the way that Styx did it, mm-hmm. uh, kind of did our own version of it. No, we just liked the song. Uh, we just liked it, and we played it for Jim, and he said, oh, yeah, that's great. That's going on the album. Okay. And so, consequently, we play that song every night. Are there what what are some of the originals on here that uh we should be aware of? Jerry uh wrote a song called uh Planet Beer <laughs> and uh Jim Davies and I Jim is not in the band but but he's a, another rock sax player that's a friend of mine. Jim and I wrote the song Bad Betty. Right. And uh Freddie wrote uh, Living in Chaos. I wrote a song called Spend the Night. Trying to think uh, what else is on there. That might be it. But are you, the Sonics aren't maybe nece- the, the Sonics aren't known necessarily for writing message songs, are you? I mean, are, do you see that? These are just, from your perspective, are these songs just fun rock songs, or are you, do you think that you're trying to convey something beyond that? No, we don't. We don't do messages, you know the old the old line about if you want to send a message, go to Western Union. <laughs> no, we don't. We don't do that. We do what the Hives refer to as riff-based rock and roll. That's what we do. That's it. Yeah, that's it. And any of the songs in the '60s that Jerry wrote, there was nothing, you know, blowing in the wind or anything. <laughs> there it was Boss Hoss, you know, and Strychnine, and no, it's just. Uh, hard rock songs with a good beat, and uh, in Jerry's case, uh, wacky lyrics. But he was a good lyricist. Yeah, no, they're great. I just, I, I was just curious. I, I, we mentioned earlier, we alluded to the idea of maturity, and I just wondered if that uh, can, can lead <laughs> you right. down. That can lead you down a dangerous path if you're an artist, because you can get sanctimonious. You can get preachy uh, if you're not careful. No, that that's something that that. Um, just because of who the five of us are and the fact that three of us have known each other for so long mm-hmm. that uh, that is just about an impossibility. Somebody started getting sanctimonious and he started getting teased a lot by the other guys. <laughs> it's a really good mix of guys, a lot of good guys with good senses of humor. Yeah, no, that comes across. And you've got, a, you've got your own label. Yeah, uh, we did that just for this album. I think the next album we do, we'll probably do it too. Uh, probably use Revox as well. Uh, what prompted that? Uh, just looking at numbers, just looking at uh, what is the best way to um, get returns, what is the best way to maximize profit. Yeah. Uh, how much can we do ourselves compared to giving up uh, 85% to a national record company, <laughs> that kind of thing. You have some interesting perspective on this, although you kind of got away from the music industry for quite a long time, but 
Uh, have things changed that much since uh, you guys were a band being potentially ripped off by record labels? Uh, well, yeah, we. Re- I guess I think there's a lot more of that now. Um, we're fortunate in that we have a business manager with some background in the record business, and even more so than Brian, we have a entertainment attorney uh, in Los Angeles who's totally conversant, and he pretty much broke down a spreadsheet. If you go this way, this is what your return per record will be. If you go this way, this is what your return will be. Here's the advantages of going to the big record company. Here's the advantages of doing it yourself. We had a lot of conferences yeah. before we finally made that decision. Okay. And what, are you pressing it on vinyl and CD and all that stuff? Yeah, both, vinyl and CD. And digital. And digital, of course. Nice. What's your preferred uh, mode of listening there? Well, I'm a, I'm a CD guy. I used to uh, have couple of really good turntables. I had a Gerard turntable and a dual turntable mm-hmm. back when I was a military guy. I don't have those anymore. So I get, I've got people give me vinyl, uh, friends of mine, like the hives have given me a couple of vinyls of their last couple of records. And, and, and I get, you know, Hey, Rob, here's our new record. Take this, you know, here's bad Betty. Here, here's the vinyl. And they're just sitting on a shelf in my music room, <laughs> get dust on them. I haven't got any way to play them. So I like I like CDs, but I from everything that I can see being in the music business now, I think finally I read that just this last month digital sales outperformed vinyl and CDs. Right. So digital digital is really rip roaring right now. But are you are you aware of there there being a, a vinyl resurgence, so to speak? I mean, the vinyl. Sales oh yeah, are, yeah, yeah. I never would have believed that. I wouldn't have believed that. As a matter of fact, our manager told me that two years ago. I didn't believe him. <laughs> he thought he was pranking. But him. I, but I do now. Yeah. It is the most durable and long-standing format. It seems odd that people have doubted its, uh, you know, strength, stability. Well, we've paid some visits to. Uh, to uh, radio stations, and and I thought the radio stations wanted CDs, but they like vinyl. Yeah. It's weird, isn't it? It's kind of weird. It is. <laughs> it's it a, is. It's a nice time for the Sonics. Well, you've got this, uh, the record's going to be out, and then the touring is happening. What do you suppose is next for this band? Have you guys thought about, do you have plans beyond uh, this next set of plans? Well, yeah, um... Our, our main goal is we're very well known in Europe. Uh, we've been there many times. We have thousands of fans in Europe, which is we're very grateful of. Um, what we're doing now is discovering the United States, or rather the United States is starting to discover us. There's places in the United States where we're quite popular and, and play, you know, Pacific Northwest for sure. Yeah. Uh, California, Los Angeles. Um, New York, certainly, and uh, we actually uh, did North by Northeast up in Toronto a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, but the flyover country, um, w- we haven't been exposed to, and nobody's really heard of us much. And now this whole next month of April, we're uh, we're we're touring the United States. It's actually our first United States tour which is nice because there's no 12-hour plane rides and five-hour 
time differences and right. things, you know. <laughs> but yeah, we're trying to establish ourselves in the United States as strongly as possible, and we're hoping this album is going to go a long way towards doing that. Um, people, when they see us, like us because in person we're pretty strong. Mm-hmm. And so if you have doubts and come see us at the end of the night, at the end of the show, there's no more doubts. Wow. <laughs> we just, we just played in Sao Paulo, Brazil three weeks ago and uh, local uh, Brazilian radio station said, what advice could you give to your fans in Brazil who are going to come see you for the first time? I said, oh, yeah, easy. Hold on to your girlfriend because there's going to be an earthquake. <laughs> and, that, and that got quoted many times in Brazil. <laughs> but that's the truth. Yeah, um, it's the truth. Come see the Sonics. The, the, floor is, the floor is going to move. <laughs> it's the truth. Well, it's nice to hear you having so much fun. And I want to say once again that the new album, This is the Sonics, is out now via Revox Records. And the Sonics are touring the U.S. in April and May with a Toronto stop at Lee's Palace on April 26th, which is exciting. For more information, uh, people can visit thesonicsboom.com. And uh, Rob, uh, is there a song from the uh, new record that I can play for folks so they uh, get a sense of what we've been talking about here? (laughs) Something that doesn't involve devils and witches? (laughs) Yeah, I I would say um, let's play I Got Your Number, and it's 666. Oh, okay. Wait a second. You just said no devils and witches. All right, fine. <laughs> <laughs> this is I now, got. <laughs> once again, in typical in typical Sonic's fashion, I got your number. Is about a bad woman, a mean girl who's mean to her boyfriend. Are they are all the women that you've encountered bad? No, I'm married to a really fantastic one. <laughs> you've spoken very lovingly of her throughout this interview, so I'm surprised by all the bad uh, impressions that there uh, that you guys no, have. No, it's that you know those those initial songs were written by teenagers <laughs> who were breaking up with their girlfriends or they're going over to their girlfriend's house and find out somebody else's cars in the driveway or something like that. So teenage angst, if you will. Sure, sure. All right, well this is I got your number by the Sonics. Uh, Rob, it was a tremendous uh, pleasure and honor to get to speak with you. I wish you All the best uh, as you guys get going here. The pleasure was all mine. I I appreciate the interview. It was an an honor talking to you, and uh, I hope when we come up to Lee's Palace, we're looking forward to Toronto because we had such a great time the last time we were there. I hope that uh, you come back and say hi. I will do. Come back to the dressing room and see us. I will do. Thanks so much, Rob. Thank you very much.
again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at cfru.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.